This week's episode is brought to you by DreamCloud Mattresses. DreamCloud is an affordable, luxury hybrid mattress that combines the best of latex, memory foam, tufting, and coil technology to provide the best sleep that money can buy, and an exciting combination of comfort and support. And what's particularly great about it is that with a 365-day free trial, that's right, a full year to try it out, you can take your time deciding whether you like it or not. For listeners of the show, DreamCloud is offering 200 bucks off your first order. Head on over to isaacmeyer.net slash dreamcloud, that's one word, dreamcloud, and click the link for the discount. And then once your new bed arrives, have a lie down, enjoy the comfort, and crank up the podcasts. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 250, Today is the Victory. One of my favorite things to think about in history is the idea of great people. Every culture has them, these figures who loom larger than life, whose stories become popular cultural touchstones. Hell, we've covered quite a few on this very show. What I really enjoy thinking about with these characters is a sort of twofold process. First, there's the historical detective work that always goes into separating the verifiable reality of a historical person from the legend that grows around them. What do we actually know about them, and what can we determine to be a legend that has accrued around them? Very rarely do those things divvy up so neatly, but it is an interesting thing to consider. That, however, is merely prelude to the second part of the process, thinking about why a person's legend has grown up the way it has. Once you've separated the fact from the fiction, or as best as you can anyway, because that process is never very clear-cut, you can then ask yourself, why is the fiction what it is? Our subject today is particularly interesting for this process. His legend is one of the best known in Japan's history, despite the fact that during his own lifetime he was a fairly obscure figure, in many ways a man out of his own time. Today, we're going to tackle the story of one of Japan's greatest warriors who lived mostly at a time when the wars were over. Today, we take on Miyamoto Musashi. We will spend a lot of time trying to unpack the legends around this man's life and why it is that he's become such a cultural icon in Japan, but first, what do we know for certain about the figure himself? As it turns out, remarkably little. The early details of Musashi's life are enormously hard to verify. The best account we have of his early childhood is his own, a very terse and thin account in his broader writings on strategy, I guess you'd call it. The Book of Five Rings is very hard to classify by genre. What we know is that he was born in central western Honshu. Musashi's own writings place his birth in Harima province, modern Hyogo prefecture, though his family had strong ties to neighboring Mimasaka province, which is now part of Okayama prefecture, and at least one modern Japanese historian places his birth in Mimasaka, specifically in the small village of Miyamoto. At any rate, we know he was from somewhere in central western Honshu in the vicinity of Himeji. The year of his birth is equally uncertain. The traditional date given is 1584, 
But his father Shinman Munisai's tombstone said that Munisai died in 1580, which of course creates some problems for that particular timeline. Munisai also divorced and remarried, or maybe his first wife died in childbirth, possibly even while giving birth to Musashi, making it really hard to say with any real certainty who Musashi's mother was. We know that Musashi was of samurai background. His father was a minor samurai in service to the Shinmen clan, and for the family's service they were granted the right to use their lord's name. In his work, Musashi would later claim descent from one of the most ancient lineages in Japan, the Fujiwara clan of aristocrats, who rose to prominence 800 years before his birth. That account is certainly not impossible, 800 years is a long time to spread the family genes around, but it's also the kind of claim to distant nobility that figures from minor families will retroactively make to justify their rise to prominence. Practically speaking, it's near certain that the claim of Fujiwara descent was a family invention. Musashi's father, Shinmen Munasai, was by all accounts a skilled warrior and duelist, though his specific exploits are very hard to separate from the legend that grew up around his son. However, it seems that Munasai himself didn't play much of a role in his child's upbringing, because by Musashi's own account, at the age of seven he moved in with an uncle, a Buddhist monk named Dorinbo, at a temple Musashi called Shoreanji. I've done quite a bit of digging, and I've had no luck locating that temple. This time in a temple would have provided Musashi with at least a basic education. Remember, until the modern era, the majority of Japanese who received education got that education from a terakoya, a temple school. Such schools tend to cover the basics of reading and writing as well as Buddhist theology, and Musashi clearly had grounding in all three of those subjects. It's pretty clear this is where he got that. Along the way, he seems to have continued to study at least some form of armed combat, either with his father or with other members of his social class. How exactly he got that training is a matter of some dispute. One of the most popular stories is that he spent at least some time training with a school of swordsmanship called the Yoshiokaryu, Though for reasons we'll get to later, I have substantial doubts about that, and I'm far from the only one. His father appears to have died around this time as well, because Dorinbo became his only guardian. Now legend has it that Musashi's first one-on-one -on -one duel took place at the tender age of 13, and I do mean legend, by the way, as the earliest source we have from this story comes from a collection of anecdotes assembled by Musashi's students. Like many such collections, it was likely intended to be a teaching tool designed to illustrate a point as much as, if not more so than, a factual recounting of the past. Now I should back up a second and talk about these duels. Remember that samurai culture during the Warring States period has this immensely powerful honor-driven component. The accumulation of honor was essential to professional warriors, both because it enhanced public reputation and because, arguably more importantly, it enhanced your attractiveness as a potential vassal to important and powerful lords. But how do you establish that honor? Well, the old-fashioned way would be to defeat enemies on the battlefield, especially influential and important enemy retainers whose severed heads you could present to your lord as a token of your abilities. But by Musashi's teen years in the 1590s, this old method of proving your worth had started to fall by the wayside. Battles were fewer and further between, as Toyotomi Hideyoshi had succeeded in reunifying Japan, however shakily, in 1590. 
And sure, Hideyoshi's Korean invasion provided an outlet for this need to establish military reputation, but that whole project was not going great. The war shaped up to be a disaster, and by 1598 the whole project was aborted after Hideyoshi's death. And what battles were left provided less and less room to establish individual honor. Increasingly, the outcome of battles was determined by massed troop formations of cheap infantry, as well as access to technologies like the Arquebus, rather than the heroism and glory of elite samurai. So how exactly would the samurai find a new way to prove their individual worth? Well, that would be a historical process that would end in the age of the samurai bureaucrat a thousand years later. Eventually, samurai would prove their worth through their mastery of Confucian theory and government. However, getting there was not a straight-line path. In the interim, there was a revival of the idea of single combat as a demonstration of a samurai's mastery. Dueling, just like head-taking, provided a clear demonstration of skill, and it harkened back to the samurai past before the Sengoku era, when battles involved a great many individual challenges between warriors. Of course, this periodization is not perfect. There were samurai in Musashi's time who embraced the idea of themselves as a governing Confucian class, and there were samurai throughout the Tokugawa period, right to the very end, who maintained the traditions surrounded dueling, though duels with live weapons would go out of fashion. But that time had not yet come, and so Musashi's life, and more importantly his legend, would come to be defined by a series of individual duels. The record of the first one is, again, from anecdotes published by Musashi's future students, and thus cannot be trusted as a factual account of events. Musashi himself references it quite briefly in the Book of Five Rings, but only in passing. The fuller account is quite interesting, as the beginning point of the Musashi legend. The story goes that a samurai named Arima Kihei, a disciple of one of the better-known swordsmanship schools of the era, Shintoryu, not related to the Shinto religion, arrived in Hirofuku, the town in which Musashi was living with Dorinbo. In keeping with the traditions of the time, he posted a formal challenge in the center of that village. To respond, you'd write your name on the challenge. And that's exactly what 13-year-old Miyamoto Musashi did. Dorimbo was, of course, appalled and tried to get Arima to ignore the challenge, which Arima refused to do unless the young boy apologized. When summoned to do that, however, Musashi instead grabbed a quarterstaff and charged Arima Kihei. Arima was utterly unprepared and knocked to the ground, and Musashi proceeded to beat him to death. Again, the details of the story are likely invented, but they're really interesting for that precise reason. Arima Kihei comes off as arrogant and overbearing, first for posting the challenge, then for being so inflexible that he refused to let a young boy off the hook, and then for being so utterly unprepared that he was taken down by said young boy. His arrogance, in the end, is grounded not in skill, but in self-regard. Musashi, meanwhile, comes off as decisive in his actions and committed to following through on them. You can definitely see how this story would be repeated to students. Arima is the perfect example of how not to behave, as his stupidity ensures first that he will be in a perfect position to get killed, and then that he is killed, while Musashi provides a clear example of how to respond in such a situation yourself. Sometime after this encounter, Musashi left Dorimbo behind and proceeded to wander Japan, 
more widely. The legend of his life portrays this as an example of Mushashugyo, a hugely romanticized term roughly meaning the warrior's pilgrimage. Essentially, a young warrior would act as a sort of apprentice figure, wandering the country looking for teachers and opponents in duels to perfect his skill and become a master. That concept, however, has way more to do with romanticization of the practice in the Edo period than anything else. In straightforward terms, this practice was a careerist move. A samurai like Musashi could defeat opponents in duels and then ransom their gear to make a living. Not to mention the fact that things in Japan were a wee bit politically tense going into 1600, as it seemed very likely that the Toyotomi peace was about to break down, so a wandering samurai with a reputation for skill had pretty good job prospects. Musashi's own account of his life highlights only one duel during this period, and here too the information is quite sparse. He says only that he defeated someone named Akiyama of Tajima at the age of 16. What we do know is that in 1600 he was recalled back home. The Shinmen clan, to which his family owed its allegiance, was being mobilized for war by their lords, the Ukita clan of Mimasaka, who in turn were being mobilized into a grand army under Ishida Mitsunari, looking to crush the arrogant pretensions of some upjumped eastern lord named Tokugawa Ieyasu. Musashi served during the Sekigahara campaigns that established Tokugawa supremacy. We know that he was present at most of the major battles, including the final decisive defeat of his side's army at Sekigahara itself. Musashi's own writings completely skip over this part of his life, and with pretty good reason since he was on the losing side. That very likely meant that he was forced to flee the battlefield to avoid surrender, which is not a great look for a fierce warrior. Not to mention the fact that he would have been in his late teens, and being present at a massive battle was frankly probably pretty traumatic. After Sekigahara, Musashi disappears for a brief time from the historical record. His own writings do not describe what he was up to after the battle. He doesn't crop up again until the age of 20, when he arrives in the city of Kyoto. Now, Kyoto in the first decade of the 1600s, in 1604 if we accept the 1584 birth date, was not the demobilized city it became under the Tokugawa. Tokugawa rule was established, yes, but not firmly. Hideyoshi's regime had lasted only a few years, after all, and until the decisive Tokugawa victory in the Siege of Osaka in 1615, no one was quite sure if this whole Tokugawa shogunate thing was going to last. Kyoto, meanwhile, had been the capital city of the previous warrior government of the Ashikaga, and still had a pretty substantial samurai vibe to it. Specifically, it was home to several prominent schools of swordsmanship, including that of the Yoshioka family. It was that family, the Yoshioka, which Musashi, who, if you believe some of the legends, had been their student once upon a time, chose to challenge in a series of duels. There is this whole mythology that has been built around the duels against the Yoshioka, including Musashi's father Munasai engaging the Yoshioka in a series of smaller duels and defeating them in matches that were attended by the last member of the Ashikaga clan to claim the title of Shogun, as well as, of course, stories of Musashi training with the Yoshioka family, which start to appear in later accounts of the duels. To me, this is pretty obviously later accretion, designed to a. lend the duels a sort of mysticized weight, 
as the culmination of this family rivalry, and B. cast Musashi in the role of a dutiful Confucian son, finishing the work of his father by destroying the Yoshioka in a way that would have been very palatable to the intellectuals of the later Edo period, and of course C. to make for a very dramatic story. Even the extent of the duels themselves was pretty questionable. Yoshioka clan documents describe exactly one duel against the head of the Yoshioka family in 1604, Yoshioka Seijiro, which Musashi won. Later accounts go into way more detail. In these, Musashi shows up to the duel with Seijiro late, an insult, how dare you not be on time to fight me, and this throws Seijiro off his game and lets Musashi defeat and cripple him with a blow to the shoulder. Seijiro's brother, Denshichiro, then took up the family headship and promptly challenged Musashi to a revenge duel which Musashi promptly won in the exact same manner. Apparently, this family had really bad temper control problems. Now, the family head of the Yoshioka family after Denshichiro was crippled was all of 12 years old, but the larger Yoshioka family was now very pissed and arranged a new challenge planning to ambush Musashi when he got to the site of the duel with a group of archers and to just murder this jerk who keeps crippling their kids. Musashi, however, ferrets the plan out and shows up early this time, so when the archers show up to get in place to kill him, he ambushes and kills them, including the 12-year-old family head, thus annihilating the Yoshioka once and for all. During this fight, pressed by multiple attackers, Musashi is said to have took them on with his long and short sword simultaneously, rather than just the long sword, and that two-sword style would become a big part of the Musashi legend. Of course, all of this has the ring of being slightly too good melodrama to be actually true, and the Yoshioka appear to have participated in the Battle of Osaka in 1614, which would be difficult to say the least if most of them had been killed by Musashi. From there, the Musashi story takes on an even more mythic quality as he wanders the land defeating warrior after warrior. Some of these duels are mentioned in the histories of other schools of swordsmanship, but those records are notoriously unreliable. You see, schools of swordsmanship, and indeed most schools during the Edo period, had this incredibly rigid tradition of secrecy surrounding them. The history of the school, alongside the private techniques and teachings of the family that ran the school, were secrets to be doled out as marks of favor to distinguished students. As historian Maki Morinaga puts it, these secret transmissions, or hiden, served as a way of legitimating the schools themselves. After all, if they were hiding their knowledge, clearly they had to know something that was worth hiding, right? That meant that what we do have of the historical record of other schools is fragmentary and often unclear in terms of its original provenance. Is it a period source that recounts something firsthand, or did a master simply finally write down a story that his master's master told him once? To put it simply, reliable sources on the schools of Edo period swordsmanship in general are very thin on the ground, to say the least. Still, by this point, the legend of Musashi the Undefeated Warrior had taken on an importance all its own, beyond the historical truth of the duels themselves, and perhaps nowhere is that better recognized than the story of the duel with Sasaki Kojido. The story goes that Musashi got it in his head to challenge one of the most famous swordsmen of western Kyushu, a samurai by the name of Sasaki Kojido. Sasaki's story was just as puffed up as Musashi's, unpacking the reality of any of it is a fruitless exercise, 
But suffice it to say that this guy, whoever he was, appears to have been constructing just as much of a mythic edifice around himself as Musashi had been. The duel, arranged by an intermediary, in some versions a prominent daimyo of western Japan, Hosokawa Tadatoki, was to take place on a small island, Ganryujima, that lies right in the middle of the Shimonoseki Strait separating Kyushu from Honshu in 1612. Accounts of the fight vary wildly. The most common version is that Musashi once again showed up late, rowing to the island only after Sasaki had been there for some time. Once on the island, Musashi presented himself not with a sword, but with a crude wooden stick he'd carved from the boat's oar. Sasaki, feeling deeply insulted by this, was absolutely furious, once again throwing him off his game and allowing Musashi to win out and beat his opponent to death. Again, versions of the story vary a bit. In some, Musashi tricks Sasaki by positioning himself so that the sun would be in Sasaki's eyes at a crucial moment. However, they basically fit this pattern of Musashi outthinking Sasaki in order to tip the scales to his own advantage. Now there's a lot to unpack here. First, once again, there's a lot to doubt, starting with the fact that verifying the historical authenticity of Sasaki Kojiro himself is pretty hard to do, since there's not, to my knowledge, an Edo period source out there that mentions him outside the context of this specific story. Beyond that, we once again have the story of Musashi deliberately insulting an opponent by showing up late in order to throw them off their game. Once again, this rings more of a didactic story designed to illustrate a point than a genuine attempt to recount the past. And it's an effective one. Like the Yoshioka stories, it seems to make a pretty clear point. Don't fight fair, fight smart, and use every advantage you can grab onto, no matter how petty, to defeat an opponent before you even fight them. From here, the detail of Musashi's life devolves into a series of anecdotal sketches that, for a modern historian, get, frankly, even more frustrating than everything else. He's often described as having been at the Battle of Osaka in 1615, when Tokugawa Ieyasu seized on a pretext to wipe out the last of the Toyotomi family. Yet there isn't even a consistent answer to the question of what side he actually fought on. Particularly fanciful stories have him literally dueling Tokugawa Ieyasu during the battle, which seems pretty unlikely given that A. The whole point of being Shogun is to have other people do the fighting part for you, and B. At this point, Ieyasu was in his 70s and so fat he couldn't get on his horse anymore. From here, honestly, I really don't think it's even worth trying to pick up the Musashi legend until the end, beyond the most basic outline. Some stories have him taking up a career in fortress design, among other things laying the groundwork for the town of Himeji and its famous castle. Others have him attempting, and failing, to become the Shogun's personal swordsmanship instructors. Some have him attempt a career as a swordsmanship instructor, only to discover that, to borrow the words of the amazing fantasy author Scott Lynch, his students wanted him to teach the art of fencing, where he wanted to teach the art of killing people with swords, and most have him engaging in yet more duels, or opening formal schools of instruction, only to discover that instruction was not really his calling. In the end, we can be fairly certain that Musashi settled in Kumamoto Domain in Kyushu, domain of Lord Hosokawa Taratoshi. Musashi ended up pledged to his service and lived as a retainer to the Hosokawa for the rest of his life, taking a few students 
as well as having a few retainers of his own and a decent stipend, 300 koku a year if you're curious. Eventually, Musashi's health started to decline. In 1642, he started to have attacks of neuralgia, a type of intense nerve pain. The next year, he decided to retire to a cave to the west of Kumamoto City, Reigando, the Spirit Rock Cave, to write his final treatise and the ideas of his career. The work that came out of this was the Goden no Sho, the Book of Five Rings, which, like the act of retiring to a cave at the end of your life to engage in serious introspection itself, was deeply inspired by Zen Buddhist tropes about mountain hermits. The manuscript was complete by early 1645. Musashi himself lingered on until June when he died, still living inside Riegando. He left behind a few manuscripts, most famously the Book of Five Rings, and a school of swordsmanship, Nitenryu, the School of Two Heavens, a name referencing the stories about Musashi's use of two swords simultaneously in combat. Death did not stop the expansion of the Musashi legend. If anything, it accelerated it. In part, this was because of the paucity of contemporary sources written about his life. Other than Musashi's own work, the most contemporary source out there is a memorial stele erected nine years after Musashi's death by his adopted son, Miyamoto Iori. Beyond that, we have the Nitenki, a source written in the 1770s by a student of Musashi's Niten school. The Nitenki is the author's account of stories told by his grandfather, who was himself a student of Miyamoto Iori, again Musashi's adopted son. That meant that the best source we have for Musashi's life are his own writings, which are pretty thin in terms of his biography, and then a rather thin funerary memorial, and a recollection of a recollection of a second-hand account. Not exactly the kind of thing that inspires confidence. What was out there in spades, however, were stories about Musashi. Not the kind of thing you'd write down, but more the kind of thing you pass along in person. Hey, did you hear the story about the guy who beat that dude to death with an oar? And of course, as anyone who's ever played the game of telephone knows, these things get distorted in the passing. This in turn let Musashi's life take on an even more mythic significance. By the late Edo period, the popular image of the man had built up to this mythic level. He'd become a sort of platonic ideal of the samurai. For example, sources closer to Musashi's own lifetime describe him as rather unkempt and suffering from rather bad eczema. However, by the late Edo period, the story had been exaggerated beyond all belief. He never bathed, out of fear that like the old samurai Minamoto no Yoshitomo, the father of the first shogun Yoritomo, he would be assassinated in the bath when his guard was down. It wasn't just these more negative traits that were exaggerated. Musashi's interest in Buddhism was transformed into a sort of enlightened warrior sagehood, with Musashi's skill at combat translating into this sort of transcendental understanding of the world itself, enlightenment at the point of a sword. Similarly, his artwork, for Musashi was apparently a calligrapher and a brush artist, though I can only speculate as to the accuracy of the attribution of specific works to him, became a means of perfecting the warrior mind, a sword stroke that was like a perfect brush stroke, decisive and excellent. Perhaps my favorite example of the exaggeration of the Musashi legend is a print by Utagawa Kuniyoshi, a late Edo period woodblock carver. In it, Musashi is shown fighting a massive whale. 
Of course, this is intensely romanticized. Musashi definitely never killed a whale in single combat. But that begs the question as to why. Why did Musashi's story ended up with all of this accreted onto it? And I think the answer is really twofold. First, we have Musashi's self-promotion in his own lifetime. Remember that as a samurai, he basically lived through an eternal job search, trying to build a story for himself in order to be marketable. His duels and victories were, in essence, a way to promote his own reputation and thereby secure a job. At the same time, you have an emerging mass market in Japan for entertainment, literature, prints, novels, things for people to consume in their spare time for fun. And of course, when you're making those, you want to draw from what people knew, and thanks to his ruthless self-promotion, people knew the story of Musashi. That's how I, at least, explain the rise of Musashi as a popular figure, one whose legend vastly outstripes his contemporary stature. Today, Miyamoto Musashi is a towering figure in Japanese popular history. He's the subject of novels and manga, most famously Yoshikawa Eiji's sprawling historical fiction Musashi, which is based on his life but takes substantial liberties, replacing his uncle Dorimbo with the famous Zen monk Takuan, for example. He's also been the subject of TV shows, anime, movies, most famously the Samurai Trilogy, three films on the life of Musashi directed by Inagaki Hiroshi and starring this podcast's official best actor in the history of the universe, Mifune Toshiro, as Musashi himself. These films were also responsible for inflating the duel with Sasaki Kojiro into a much larger part of the story. In the films, Sasaki is an ongoing antagonist rather than a one-off foe for a duel, a twist borrowed originally from Yoshikawa's novel. Today, a long-standing Sasaki-Musashi rivalry that is totally unsupported in more contemporary accounts is one of the most basic tropes of depictions of Musashi. In brief, then, that's the life and legacy of Miyamoto Musashi, a man whose legend has grown to heights he never could have imagined. The fiction of his life, growing as it did out of a combination of his own self-promotion and the cultural circumstances of his time, has really taken on a life of its own. Today, he's almost certainly one of the best-known historical figures in the country, not to have, you know, actually ruled it at some point. That lack of power, though, may be the last ingredient that makes his story so attractive. Not many of us can empathize with high-power politics. Few of us have ever had to make life-and-death decisions to crush our rivals and rule a nation with an iron fist. However, journeying off on your own, with nothing but your wits to pit against the world, and coming out not only on top, but a legend, that's a story that I think can speak to a lot more people. And it's that last piece that makes Musashi a name for the ages. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Henry Ho and Robert Lang for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. There will be no new episode next week, as I will be on vacation with my family in beautiful eastern Washington, so I'll see you in two weeks' time, when we take on the history of homosexuality in Japan.